My family and I have long been customers of a certain cell phone company. This is not a, an advertisement. <laughs> our plan and our contract is really good. As the years have gone by, the company's network has broadened and many new customers have been added, but they haven't been added to the exact same plan and contract as ours. That particular plan is being maintained only for the original contract holders. The newer customers are under slightly modified terms and conditions, but they still get to enjoy the same great provider. Now, I'm not gonna tell you who that is because this isn't an advertisement, but follow me on this. In our passage this morning, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount by addressing, if you will, God's original contract holders, the Jews. His Jewish disciples are sitting around his feet, and just beyond them is a large crowd of Jews, men and women and children from all over the region of Galilee who have seen his miracles and heard his message that... God's kingdom of heaven has arrived, hallelujah. Two Sundays ago in Matthew 5, verses one through 12, Jesus described for his disciples what citizens of heaven look like. Last Sunday in verses 13 through 16, Jesus described what citizens of heaven are to do. And today in verses 17 through 20, lest there be any confusion among them, Jesus clarifies for his disciples exactly what he has come to do and what he has not come to do. So, put the cell phone illustration in your pocket because I'm going to refer to it throughout our time this morning. I invite you to follow along as I read today's passage, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you say a word of prayer with me? Father, in the passage we've just read, Jesus regards the word as true and authoritative. We ask that you would help us to do the same and to submit to it in the manner that you have intended for us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna dive right in. I need to forewarn you, especially if this is your first time. Today's message is gonna be heavy on teaching and it might feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon. I apologize, but this particular passage calls for this approach. And so if you're a note taker, for the remainder of our time, we'll consider two points. The first is a conjunctive point. What Jesus is saying and to whom he is saying it. That's point number one. 
And number two, toward the end, what it means for us today. So point number one, what Jesus is saying and to whom he is saying it. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now for us in the 21st century, the law and prophets are the books of the Bible that comprise two-thirds of the Old Testament. For the first century Jews who are surrounding Jesus on the mount, the law and prophets referred essentially to all of scripture. At the time of Jesus' ministry, the New Testament didn't yet exist. The biblical story as we know it today and redemptive history as we know it today was still unfolding and many books of the Bible were yet to be inspired by God. The first five books of the Bible are known as the law. After God, in, uh, after God forms a people for himself in the book of Genesis, the law was given to the people of Israel through the prophet Moses in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those books of the law contain 613 terms and conditions that spell out how the people of Israel are to love God who graciously set them apart, how they are to love one another as recipients of God's grace, and how they are to represent God on the earth. Now the prophets, the prophets are the books of the Bible such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. In the books of the prophets, there are warnings and judgments and promises to the people of Israel as well as prophecies of a coming Messiah who would come into the world as one of them to rescue, redeem, and restore them and to rescue and redeem people from every other tribe, tongue, and nation of the world. That's a very brief overview of the law and prophets that Jesus is referring to here in verse 17. And as he continues the Sermon on the Mount, he wants to make especially clear for his Jewish disciples what he has and has not come to do regarding the law and prophets, he has come to fulfill them. He has not come to abolish nor to do away with them. He hasn't come to nullify the terms and conditions that accompanied their covenant with God. He hasn't come to negate what has long made them distinct among the nations. Circumcision, food laws, feasts, Sabbath. Instead, being born under the law as a Jew, Jesus has come to confirm, obey, and to model the law and the prophets to their fullest expression. He has come to fully uphold all that the prophets foretold would happen, and he has come to fully uphold all that the law requires to happen. This is why Jesus is wanting to be especially clear to his disciples in verse 17, don't misunderstand why I've come. Now, a quick aside. Not really an aside, but a, a brief moment here. For those of us who are reading through scripture together in the Dwell Bible app, we are in the book of Genesis. The law is coming, but first, listen to this. God is forging the people of Israel by his grace. And when the law arrives in the coming books, it will be the occasion for them to respond to God's grace with obedience. In verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples, for truly I say to you, 
until heaven and earth pass away. That is, until the present world ceases to exist. Not an iota, not a dot, that is, not the smallest stroke of a pen will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, there are some Christians who say that here, Jesus is referring to his death and resurrection. And now that his death and resurrection has been accomplished, the entirety of the law has passed away. I humbly disagree because that's not what Jesus is saying here. There are also some Christians who say that, well, Jesus is, he's only referring to, referring to select portions of the law. The ones like love your neighbor and stuff like that, those components remain, but circumcision and dietary and feast laws and Sabbath, those things are no more. Again, I humbly disagree, especially as we consider what Jesus says next in verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now with wording like that, Jesus is clearly referring to the whole law, not just portions. And if I can insert a, another quick commercial, notice how Jesus makes clear that there will be a least in the kingdom of heaven, meaning there will be varying degrees of honor given to citizens of heaven. That's humbling, isn't it? I mean, we might pride ourselves on being hot shots here on earth, but how is our conduct now impacting our places of honor to come? End of commercial. Whoever relaxes the least of these commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven, but, but, whoever does these commandments and teaches them will be called great. Now, without a, no, without a doubt, there would have been some scribes and Pharisees eavesdropping on this sermon. And without a doubt, their ears would have perked up when Jesus says that those who do and teach the law would be called great. Let me just hit on the scribes and Pharisees for just a moment. Scribes were highly trained experts paid to interpret and apply the law. One commentator says scribes normally began their training as children and they continued their studies until formal ordination at age 40. They were so respected by the Jews of the day that when a scribe would walk down the street in their distinctive robes, Jews would stand in their honor and greet them with titles like rabbi, father, and master. Pharisees were unpaid members of a Judaic movement who were meticulously committed to observing the law. The scribes and the Pharisees, though a bit different from one another, were both committed to study, observe, and teach the law. So with Jesus' words in the second half of verse 19, it sounds as if the scribes and Pharisees would be called great in the kingdom of heaven and surely they thought they would be and then in verse 20 Jesus drops a grenade on the parade <laughs> but I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven 
you could have heard a pin drop in the middle of that massive crowd. Imagine Jesus picking up a microphone at an NBA All-Star game and announcing to an entire packed stadium that unless your game surpasses these All-Stars, you're not gonna play for my team. And Jesus' disciples would have probably been like, right on, man, right on. Stick it to the man. But wait a minute. What does that mean for us? Like, if the scribes and Pharisees have gotten it all wrong, how do we get this right? Well, in the very next section of the Sermon on the Mount, it's as if Jesus did this in order on purpose. In verses 21 through 48, Jesus actually answers that question, how to get it right, by highlighting the heart that the law was always intended to cultivate in God's people. The heart of the law that the scribes and Pharisees had long undermined. In showing his disciples the heart of the law, he's going to show his disciples, he's gonna show us what true obedience to the law looks like, which will set them apart from the scribes and Pharisees and they won't be adding to or sweetening the righteousness that Christ is going to impute upon them in his death and resurrection. Now before we move on to point two, before we discuss what it means for us today, here are two quick, quick takeaways so far. As the true fulfillment of the law and prophets the whole Bible points to Jesus. We are bound to get a lot of things wrong here at Oaks, but by God's grace, we can and will get Jesus right because the kingdom of heaven belongs to us. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Second takeaway. There is a movement in the American church today that insists Christians must love and follow Christ, but not necessarily his word. This growing movement is growing and is comprised of churches who are buckling under the pressures of radical politics, LGBTQ, and many others, and these churches and these very mistaken professing Christians are claiming that in order to best love our present culture, Christians must be committed to the person of Jesus, but we must distance ourselves from some of his words. I'm glad that sounds wonky to you. I mean, would you say that my kids love me if they disregard my instruction? No, no. <laughs> to love Jesus is to love his word because not a dot nor an iota was written by mistake. So it begs the question, what does this passage mean for us today? What does it mean for you and me as Gentiles? Are we accountable to the law 
in the same way as God's original contract holders, the Jews, I humbly submit to you, no, we are not. All scripture has been given to us by God, so we must joyfully study the book of Genesis. We must learn from the book of Exodus. We must receive training from the book of Leviticus. But we mustn't do so in a way that fails to appreciate the unfolding timeline and nuance of the biblical story. We mustn't do so in a way that reduces the diversity of the tribes and tongues and nations of Christ down to one homogenous group. As Jesus delivers this sermon, Gentiles are nowhere on the redemptive map. If you remember from our series in the book of Acts, the Gentiles are not fully included into the redemptive story until Acts chapter 10, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, after the formation of the church, and after the conversion of a man named Paul, who was then commissioned by Jesus to deliver the gospel message to the Gentiles that they may be added to a new covenant community. Like a new cell phone customer being welcomed into a network, although under slightly modified terms and conditions, now there was a ton of confusion about this in the first century church. Jesus' first followers, after all, had emerged from within Judaism and so naturally came the question, should the Gentiles who come to Christ observe the law in the same way as the Jews? And in response to this question, the apostles Peter and James and Paul and the rest and the elders of the Jerusalem church got together in Acts chapter 15 to prayerfully discuss the matter. And actually, if you're a quick flipper, I'd even invite you, would you turn with me to Acts 15, verses 19 through 21. I'm gonna read the words that the apostle James proposes as an idea to the other apostles. And he says this, we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them and urge them to abstain from four things. That they abstain from things polluted by idols, that is, food that had been sacrificed to foreign gods. That they abstain from sexual immorality. That they abstain from what has been strangled, that is, the meat of animals that had been viciously killed and that they abstain from blood. There was a, a belief that consuming the blood of strong animals would make one strong. James finishes his proposal to the apostles in Acts 15 verse 21 and he reasons with them something. He says this, in every city where these Gentiles are turning to God, there are Jews like us and there are synagogues in which the law of Moses is read every Sabbath. Now that verse is peculiar. 
And if we fail to understand it, the books that follow the book of Acts, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and so on, will be confusing. The books of Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and so on were written by Paul to Gentile churches. And in them, he repeatedly conveys Gentiles are not obligated to keep the law in the same way as Jews. He addresses circumcision. He addresses dietary law and feast and Sabbath, all of which made the Jews distinct among God's people. So back to Acts 15, 21, we need to understand something. When James is reasoning with the other apostles that there are synagogues in all the cities where these new Gentile Christians are emerging, he is not implying that the Gentile Christians would start with these four prohibitions and work their way into the rest of the law. In fact, he is reasoning with the other apostles that if these Gentiles simply observe these four expectations in all of their cities, wherever they're at, it will help to foster unity between Jewish and Gentile believers who are both equal yet distinct within God's kingdom. If James and Peter and Paul and the rest of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 had truly expected Gentile Christians to enter the synagogues and grow in their observance of law, they would have told them so, and they did not at all. And we know so, because in Acts 15, 28 through 29, look down with me, is recorded the exact letter that went out to all the Gentile Christians who were being affected by their decision. And here's what it says. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Keep yourselves from these and you'll do well. Farewell. Full stop. Now, interestingly, these same four expectations by themselves with no caveat for going to the synagogue and learning how to become Jews, this is all restated by Paul and James in Acts chapter 21. Do you know the amount of time in between Acts 15 and Acts 21? These are the forming years of the church. This was crucial for clarity. 10 years has transpired between Acts 15 and Acts 21 and the exact same terms and conditions are placed on the Gentiles by Paul and James. They agree and affirm what they did 10 years ago at the Jerusalem Council. Gentiles are not expected to embrace the old covenant law in the same way as their distinct and wonderful original contract holding Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. By God's mysterious and merciful, amazing grace, 
God's network has broadened. And he has added Gentiles under a new contract ratified by the blood of God the Son himself who fulfilled the law and prophets, who died for our justification, who rose for our assurance, who will soon return for his people from every tribe and tongue and nation who have been united by his gospel and indwelled by his same Holy Spirit being transformed transformed by his grace and sealed for his glory. Amen. Amen. Now in closing, I need to say, it's felt a little luxury today, I'm sorry. It's not inherently wrong to be a Gentile Christian who feels compelled to obey the law in much of the same way as the Jews. But please bear in mind three critical things. One, your observance of the law must be in response to Christ's saving grace and not a means of earning it. By grace, we have been saved. How can any of us possibly earn or even add to the perfect righteousness that Christ gives to those who simply trust him? It's an astounding truth. In all of my wretchedness, there is a sense in which, and it is the dominant sense in which, God the Father looks down on me and my brothers and sisters in Christ as perfectly righteous. Can we not be giddy about the hallelujah? Two, your observance of the law must not be regarded as achieving a special righteousness or a higher righteousness than your Gentile brothers and sisters who hold to the biblical conviction that there is a God-glorifying distinction between Jew and Gentile. between original contract holders and new contract holders. Three, if you are a Gentile feeling compelled to observe the law in much of the same way as Jews, you must not place pressure or expectation upon Gentile believers to observe the law in the same way as Jews. Every one of God's people is called to obey God's word. You will not have an argument from any true Christian on that matter. But we must, and at Oaks Church, we must hold in tension the biblically clear notion that there are some God-glorifying distinctions among God's people that he intended as beautiful. If anyone is interested in resources on this topic that I believe are very helpful, please see me after the service. And as Gentiles in this room, if you by faith have come under the blood of Christ, you've been washed of your sin, you're trying by God's grace to repent and to walk in the righteousness Christ provides, 
every dot and iota of his fulfillment of all that God commands has been imputed to you and you and I under the blood of Jesus stand here righteous in full and now may we continue to put on those cloaks of righteousness and grow up into the people of God as Gentiles that God has intended for us to be to his glory and our joy. Let's pray together. Father, in the passage that we have just considered today, it is no mistake, Jesus regards the word as true and authoritative. And so we ask this, help us to do the same. Help us to submit to it in the manner that you have intended for us for your glory and for our joy. We pray this and know that you will answer this. We have all the confidence in the world because of the blood of Christ and the spirit who indwells us. We lay this at your feet in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.